We're really happy to welcome uh, Professor Don Buckholder from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania Geography and now Planning Department. Okay, and Don uh, told me the IUP is now going to be um, getting or looking for applying for uh, a CSP Association Collegiate Schools of Planning accredita accreditation uh, for their planning program. So it's an expanding planning program at IUP. Don's a geographer, um, and he uh, will be talking about polycentric cities and the urban transportation network, and analyzing urban structure in Pittsburgh with network models and cartography. Um, Don's a, uh, Don has his doctoral degree in geography from the University of Tennessee and his master's and master's degrees um, both in geography from the University of Nebraska. Uh, you came to IUP, what did you say, 1987? 87. So uh, his work extends well beyond western Pennsylvania. Some of you may know Don from his work in Eastern Europe in the seminar uh, you've given a hit before on Eastern Europe. But today he's focused on the Pittsburgh region and polycentric models in transportation. Thanks, Don. Thank you very much. Um, well, I'm very pleased uh, to speak to the uh, University Center for Social and Urban Research um, because uh, there are a lot of different ways to study social and urban issues. And I have a feeling, uh, in fact, I presume that this audience represents quite a few different approaches to the study of uh, these issues. Um, I'm going to explain how, particularly how quantitative geographers um, approach um, uh, urban geography, and uh, I'm going to encourage you to think about how this approach might complement your own. Don, I, did, I didn't see when I was talking to monocentric and polycentric under disorganized. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah. Uh, well, that, yeah, and that's. I left it out of it, uh, out of the text, but the organized and the disorganized city, well, I'll, I'll make some inferences about that, but uh, more specifically, I'm going to be talking about the monocentric and, uh, and, and polycentric dichotomy, uh, uh, because, um, well, Pittsburgh has issues, geographical issues. Uh, they have issues of land use, urban development, social equity, um, all of these are related to the built environment, and I'd like to make two points about uh, Pittsburgh and those issues. Number one, Pittsburgh was already a sprawling metropolis by 1920. Urban sprawl is not a new thing in Pittsburgh. Urban sprawl is what Pittsburgh is and, and has been for more uh, than a century. The second point I'd like to make is that when technologically sophisticated human beings choose to live in that kind of land use pattern, choose to sprawl as urban residents out over a vast urban region, they then expect the transportation system to help alleviate some of the natural consequences of that settlement pattern. So that's the, uh, that's the basis of the link between transportation and urban structure. Uh, that I want to focus on. Uh, I use the, poly, the word polycentrism, and that's 
kind of a key word that urban geographers, transportation geographers, uh, have been using for several decades now, um, and uh, uh, describes metropolitan areas uh, pretty well. Of course, uh, what it means is that uh, we are in the process of trying to think of alternatives to some of our nice classic monocentric models of urban structure. Maybe you're familiar with Burgess or Homer Hoyt or Harrison uh, Alden, or if you're of a bit more uh, a mathematically rigorous bent, uh, William Alonzo, all of these, uh, within their own intellectual paradigms, great theoretical constructs about the monocentric city, and then lo and behold, we get into the late 20th and early 21st centuries, and we decide uh, that we have polycentric cities. And um, what are we going to do about this? And what, what has been done uh, a great deal is empirical study. Lots of uh, empirical studies of uh, polycentric cities, and nobody uh, does that better than Genevieve Giuliano, who's, uh, this is one of her maps of uh, the Los Angeles metropolitan region, um, empirically documenting the various urban subcenters uh, that make up the Los Angeles metropolitan area, uh, and that's become sort of a model for how uh, other geographers and, and players study other cities. Um, but it is that. It is an empirical uh, approach. And the theory of the polycentric city is not nearly as well developed as the theory of the monocentric city. And that's too bad. Because a lot of the issues, a lot of the practical problems, and a lot of the policy decisions could really benefit um, from some kind of cogent organizing principles. We don't really have those worked out. Yet. I took Giuliano's basic method, which is to identify urban subcenters by employment density. So I do have to say a little bit about the cartography here. You're not looking at absolute numbers of employees. You're looking at number of employees per square kilometer. So the size of the mapping unit does matter. And the mapping units here are census block groups. If you know your census geography, the smallest unit is the census block, and then cobble a few of those together, and you have a census block group, and cobble a few census block groups together, and you have a census tract. Well, I chose the middle one. Giuliano from Los Angeles used the census tracts. Well, you have a huge area like Los Angeles, a bigger unit like a census tract works pretty well. But here, uh, census block groups, and I did tinker with them a little bit. Uh, I modified a few of the census block groups, actually split a few of them, so some of these places uh, would pop out. And then the colors represent density of employees. So a big unit like this one may have as many employees as a, uh, or some comparable number of employees as a smaller unit like that. Um, it, it, it's, you know, there's no perfect way to map this, uh, but understand that you are looking at uh, uh, at population, uh, at employment density, number of employees per uh, unit area. And of course, the central business district uh, stands out, as it no longer does, at least not nearly as vividly, in other American metropolitan areas. I mean, Pittsburgh is, I don't know, are we ahead of the times or behind the times? But we're not typical. We have more employment concentrated in the central business district 
uh, on a proportional basis than, than is customary for American, American metropolitan areas. We also have a very distinct number two, and that is the open shady side area, uh, and that shows up over here, just about five miles from downtown. Very distinct, uh, um, and that it has far fewer employees than the Central Business District, but also very distinct in that it has a lot more employees than whatever center uh, you have in place in, uh, in third place. But then we have all these other places <coughs> that are rather substantial. When you factor in that these are larger units, so you multiply their density by the size of units, and there are these uh, considerably uh, substantial employment centers outside of the center city. So we do have a, uh, a polycentric uh, metropolis using the criteria of employment density. And I'm not going to try and name all of those outlying centers, uh, but I want to make a couple of points about them. Number one, they're different in function. Some of them are organized around major shopping malls. Some of them are organized around an airport. Some of them are uh, organized around a suburban business complex. They're functionally different. You don't all do uh, the same thing. Second point, if you just kind of look, take an overview of uh, Allegheny County, um, you see that you have kind of a different geographical pattern in different <coughs> sections. I mean, out here west of downtown, we basically have three big centers. In the North Hills, we have three big centers. In the East, we have one big sprawling center. We call it Monroeville. It uh, lasts over in the Wilkins Township. And in the South Hills, we have fragmentation. So depending on which uh, way you go from the Central Business District, you end up with uh, different kinds of geographical patterns. And I wanted to just kind of zoom in on those South Hills, give you a chance to see the names of some of these local uh, municipalities. This is just a pull up of that uh, employment density map. Uh, and then over here on the right, we have a map that is based on the PennDOT Road classification. We have three different categories of controlled access highways down here. A blue one, a red one, a green one. Um, the distinctions are terribly important right now, but they all have this kind of black line down the middle to show you that's a uh, that's a classified by PennDOT at least as a fully controlled access highway. It has separated lanes moving in opposite directions, and people get on and off from ramps, not at stoplights or, or or turn lanes or that sort of thing. And we have this vast region, colloquially known as the South Hills between the Monongahela and Sharkier Creek and no fully controlled access highways. So why is this the sector that has that more fragmented pattern of uh, employment subsets? Well, uh, intuition uh, and my bias as a transportation geographer tells me the dearth of controlled access highways um, would be somehow uh, involved in that. Also involved in it is topography. And this is another respect in which Pittsburgh is a little bit different than a lot of uh, metropolitan areas. Just about every city has its physical barrier, its uh, local site, its geographical quantity. But um, I think it is a fair statement to say uh, that in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area, topography has been more of a constraint than is typical of American 
metropolitan areas. I mean, places such as St. Louis and Chicago have their lakefront, their riverfront, uh, their whatever, but they, they are not built on a plateau with deep valleys incised uh, into the landscape. Uh, they do have large rivers, but it's particularly the escarpments, which we locally call mountains, but they're really escarpments, but these very steep features on the landscape that, uh, that form barriers. Now, here's kind of the interesting thing from the standpoint of historical development. Those escarpments were really um, definitive barriers to land use patterns in the 19th century. I mean, people just couldn't get from one side to the other in any practical means. So the city, as it developed in the 19th and maybe a decade or two into the 20th century, just sort of filled in the valleys and followed those corridors. And places such as the, uh, uh, the Turtle Creek Valley became natural transportation corridors, and development followed that. By the mid-20th century, certainly, technology had developed the ability to overcome those barriers. We could bore holes through the escarpments, or blast out these road cuts, or build very sophisticated bridges across the rivers. We had the ability, but uh, the established land use pattern today is more of a restriction on altering the uh, transportation network, but it is the land use pattern that was established by those transportation barriers from the 19th century. So it's not a simple story, but topography still plays a role, albeit um, indirectly. Um, and by mid-20th century, we got this pattern that was partly related to that topography and partly related to some other uh, factors. This is from the uh, Pittsburgh Area Transit Study, uh, which was published in 1963, uh, based on survey data taken in 1958. So they just labeled the map 1960. Let's just split the difference uh, between the two. And, and, and that works for me, actually. And what it shows is that as of 1960, Pittsburgh uh, basically had a radial transportation pattern focused on the central business district. Uh, well, here's where the thick lines are going with uh, just a few kind of cross-town routes out in uh, the suburban locations. I don't know if you picked this out, but this is the Allegheny County boundary out here. So we're, we're focused in um, on... Uh, uh, on Allegheny County and, and not even all of Allegheny County. Uh, but what were these uh, suburban locations that were beginning the process of taking commercial development and employment out of uh, the Central Business District? Well, in 1960, more than anything else, it was retail. And by 1960, Monroeville was already developing as a major retail center. And that map on the right is from the Census of Retail Trade. That's what they're mapping out. And this cluster of little circles that you see there are places that the Census of Retail Trade identified as major retail facilities in, uh, in 1960. And for several decades in the middle of the 20th century, retail was catalytic. That is, the process of sprawl, the process of employment coming out of the Central Business District and going into the suburbs more often than not, was focused on the suburban shopping center. That was the catalyst, and then other stuff would kind of fill in uh, following that lead. 
Now, two things have changed since the middle of the 20th century. The central business district isn't as important as it used to be in a relative sense as a location or a destination. And retail is not as important as it used to be as a sector that leads growth. Both of those things have, have changed. But like the physical landscape and its impact in the 19th century, both that radial orientation of the CBD and the impact of retail has left infrastructure in place. It's left a legacy. And those legacies, once they're established, um, are kind of hard to change. OK. Public transportation, especially with academics and planners. You know, we love this topic. Uh, I do. Uh, and so it does come up. Uh, the general public, not so much. They like to be in their automobiles so that they can uh, go home from work, pick the kids up from soccer practice on the way, do some shopping, run some errands, and have that freedom of, uh, of movement. So we have, in Pittsburgh, as in most uh, major metropolitan areas, uh, an overwhelming preponderance of, of trips uh, of all types by uh, private transportation, not public transportation. But we do have public transportation in Pittsburgh. Um, here are a couple of things about our public transportation system uh, taking this overview type of, of approach. Uh, for one thing, we have light rail transit. Um, and it is in the South Hills. It is asymmetrical. Pittsburgh used to have a very extensive uh, streetcar system all over the place. Uh, but the part that has survived and has remained is only into that one sector. There's no light rail transit north. There's no light rail transit east. You can't even take light rail transit to the airport, which really uh, sets us behind some, uh, um, some other uh, metropolitan areas. Asymmetrical and, and uh, for historical uh, reasons. We have a busway, Martin Luther King busway. I get into Pittsburgh on weekends, and so I took this picture on a Sunday morning. So that's why it appears a little bit like a ghost town. It is not like that. It is, uh, it is cited in the literature as one of the most successful, dedicated public transit arterials in any North American city. The only thing is, it is the east busway. We have a south busway, we have a west busway. They are much less intensively used, and they don't go nearly as far. The North Busway, the HOV lane passes for that. So the busway, like the light rail system, not quite as uh, to such an extreme, but, but like the light rail system, these, these dedicated busways are asymmetrical for historical reasons, not for the internal logic of doing an efficient transportation network for historical reasons. So uh, we're bound by history here. Okay. Um, this leads me, well, and we have a lot of other buses running around all over the place on the city streets, and that leads me to my first simplifying assumption, because automobile transportation is overwhelmingly dominant, and because even the public transportation system, the buses, in most cases, run on the, uh, on the city streets and roads, I am going to say that this justifies me in doing a single network analysis. And at some point, someone might want to argue, oh, contraire, it is really 
several networks and we have to learn how they integrate together with each other. Okay, that's true, but we can do a single network analysis to get an overview, a synoptic perspective, and at a certain level of generalization, um, it's, uh, it's going to be valid. Okay, so we're interested in roads uh, and highways, and of course, the most important part are those controlled access highways that you saw on the PennDOT uh, transportation map. And uh, here, Western Pennsylvania has a little historical bragging right also because fully controlled access highways came to Allegheny County in 1940, <coughs> a decade and a half before they came to most metropolitan areas in the United States in the form of the Pennsylvania uh, Turnpike. But it was the interstate highway system that really started uh, packing in uh, the miles uh, and establishing a, 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 uh, an extensive system. And this very rapid development of controlled access highways continued into the 1970s. So call that phase one, 1940 into the 1970s, rapid, revolutionary development of a controlled access highway system. And sometime in the 1970s, or maybe at the end of the 1970s, that pace of development changed, uh, and since then we have continued to add links to the controlled access highway system, but it's been intermittent uh, and by fits and starts. So call that phase two, 1980 to the present, the intermittent stage of controlled access highway development. Okay. And we have ended up uh, with something that looks like uh, the figure that you have on uh, the right. I haven't labeled anything. I thought it was a messy enough, confusing enough map as is. You know, I always try and uh, um, put some mystery in my maps, and I thought this one's hard enough to figure out, even without a lot of lettering on there. Um, here's, here's the point I want you to notice, just looking at this map, of Allegheny County and some of the surrounding areas. Again, you know, these are the divided highways and the secondary roads are in there and all. The problem is not that we have never spent any money or devoted any large amount of land use or time and effort to transportation infrastructure. We have a lot of that. I mean, this represents huge investments, both in amount of land, and amount of effort and financial investment. So there's a lot of stuff there. And I assume that we're going, our society is going to continue to make large investments in transportation in one way or another. So the issue isn't whether we're going to uh, uh, invest in it or not. The, uh, the question is whether we're going to do so, so in, uh, in uh, such a way uh, that we uh, create an efficient structure. And the second point I would make while this map is up here, these things are uh, of different types, constructed at different times and different styles. So therein lies part of the problem, the, uh, the ad hoc nature of that uh, historical development. Okay. Let's talk about methods. How are we going to analyze this system? And what I want to focus on today is the simplest method possible. Start out with the simplest methodology, and let's see what we can learn from that first, and then maybe uh, look at how we can make some of the analyses um, uh, more complex. 
This is uh, what is known as a spinal network. That is, we have some places. One, two, three, four, five, six places connected by five links. The terminology is a little bit tricky because it depends on whether you're asking a geographer or a mathematician. Uh, to a geographer, they're nodes and links. To a mathematician, they're vertices and edges. A vertex is a node, an edge is a link at least for my purposes today. So the nodes are vertex one through vertex six. Um, uh, and all we've done down here is taken this graph and converted it in to a matrix. And the name of this matrix is the C1 matrix. C for connectivity. And one, we're interested in direct connectivity only. That means what we're filling in in the field here is binary. If there is a one-link path connecting a pair of nodes, then we're going to put a one in here. Can you get from vertex one to vertex two by a one-link path? Yes, you can. That gets a one. Can you get from one to three by a one-link path? No, you can't. That gets a zero. We'll fill that in. Okay? Simple, right? Painfully simple. Overly simple. But let's start with that. And let's take our spaghetti map of the PennDOT roads of southwestern Pennsylvania and make that into something resembling our graph of nodes and links. Green links, red nodes, uh, so they'll stand out. And I used 1999. I figured the year of the turn of the millennium is not a bad uh, reference point. Okay, so here's what I would like you to do now. And in, in the interest of time, I'm not going to give you much of a chance here, but just a minute to get started so you kind of get the feel for it a little bit. And what I want you to do is look at your graph of um, southwestern Pennsylvania and look at the matrix that I've provided and match up the origins and the destinations and fill in ones where there is a direct link. Just, yeah, take a minute, do a couple of them. I don't think I'll give you enough time to get through it, but I just want you to get the idea. Caesar is a quick study. He's got the top <laughs> row down already. Pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> I, better, I, better, I better check his work here. No, I don't, I don't think he has. I think he's got it. <coughs> Would you like to see what I got? There it is. And you can check my work, because I, I did rehearse this talk, and I found an error about 
four out of five times I found some kind of error in something that I had up here. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure that I found the last one. So you might, you might be the person to discover that. But let me just show you what we do with this matrix when we get it filled out. A couple of things. Number one, you can add, and one of the assumptions is that it is a, a symmetrical graph, meaning that these links are two-way graphs. I think you could probably visualize we could change that assumption. We could make it one way and produce a different type of matrix, but that's more complicated. And my goal is to keep this as, uh, as simple as possible. So let's make them all two-way streets, and that produces a symmetrical uh, matrix. And that means you're going to get the same answer whether you add across rows or add down columns. And in either case, let's just add across the rows. And what you get out here is a number that is known as the degree of the node. So because Robinson Township has direct links with four other nodes, its score is four. It has a degree of the node of four, whereas West Catanning only has a direct link with one. Its degree of the node is one. And we have a way of comparing nodes in terms of their accessibility within the network. And then we have this figure down here, which is actually the sum of these divided by two. Remember, they're two link paths, so they show up in each direction as you add across here. So you have to add these and divide by two, and that's the total number of links. And that's an aggregate for the entire network. We have 10 nodes connected by 13 meaningful links, and we have ranks for each of those nodes. Okay. <coughs> what did we come up with? We came up with a network in which suburban locations are more accessible than the CBD. Notice the high scores here. Cranberry, Harbor, and Robinson. CBD, or I call it downtown, is slightly lower in rank. The Central Business District is not the most accessible place in the network. Some historical maps um, might help get us into this a little bit. I'm going to do a time series using that technique. Um, and I want to kind of show you where I'm going to start the time series, which is 1980. It's the cusp between those two eras. The era of very rapid buildup of the network, and then the more incremental, I decided to start at uh, 1980. So these are just Pennsylvania highway maps from 1980. If you move back just a little bit into the 1970s, uh, one of the points you can make about the Pittsburgh metropolitan area, it has no beltway. Not true. That one. Hmm? That one. Not true. Not true. Your first map showed a my first map showed a belt. Turnpike, 79 and 70. Oh, yeah. It's the 79 was not there until the late 1970s. Yes. It came in in the late 1970s. Uh, the turnpike, that's interesting. Because it looks, it does, on a map, it looks like a beltway. That's true. And it's in about the right place for a beltway. does not have enough interchanges for a beltway. And the interchanges are poorly articulated compared to the beltways in other cities. So it is a beltway, it isn't a beltway. 
kind of on the cusp a little bit. And I-79, in terms of its actual interchange morphology, is not a very good beltway either. Neither of these were actually constructed as beltways are constructed in Atlanta, in Washington, in Houston, in these, yeah, Boston. In many American cities, you have the radial pattern and you have the radians intersecting the beltway at pretty conventional interchanges, and these have been the points of catalytic development in the polycentric city. What do you do when you have a city that doesn't have that kind of morphology, doesn't have the right kind of ramps, the right kind of access between the radial and the, uh, and the alleged beltway? Well, you make do with interchanges that aren't quite right. You make Cranberry work, even though it isn't right. And you make Robinson work, even though it isn't the kind of place you find at Tyson Corridor or, or any of uh, a number of other places. And that's what developers did. They looked at Pittsburgh, they looked for the Beltway, they didn't really see the Beltway, so they said Cranberry is going to have to do and Robinson is going to have to do, and we're going to put the retail there, we're going to put the office complexes there, we're going to make them function as beltway interchanges, even though they are not. Well, okay, but they don't function the same way, and, and maybe not uh, as well. Okay, another thing that is uh, incomplete is actually the radius pattern in, uh, in Pittsburgh, and the one true radian that we had early and persisted was the Parkway East. And because it's the one, it had to bear a disproportionate load, was overloaded uh, for, uh, uh, for the uh, design that it received, and you've been in the middle of that. Okay, so let's go to 1980, and here's our graph uh, for 1980. Uh, and uh, I'll just tell you, a node is either a terminus or an interchange on, uh, on the graph where, where uh, links cross. Not all interchanges are going to be nodes because we're going to do this as a non-planar graph. That's because you have things such as the interchange between I-79 and I-279 where there's no way to get on and off of the highway system. There's no access and, and, and egress. So that is not a place where a commercial subcenter could develop, even though it's an inter uh, intersection of two lengths of the highway system. So uh, we're going to analyze it as a non-planar graph where it is possible to have an intersection uh, that is uh, not a node. And the other thing we're going to do that you might be wondering about, we're going to ignore the exit links. We don't have to. There are ways to deal with exit links, but we're not going to do that today, or I'm not going to do that today. Think about that if you like. Um, okay, so here's 1980 and the C1 matrix for 1980. Um, and uh, what it comes up with is eight nodes, nine links, and <clears throat> of course there could have been a lot more links. There are a lot of other places you could have drawn green lines on this map connecting places up. So that gives us the ability to calculate something called Gamma. Gamma is a ratio. It is the ratio of the actual number of links to the maximum possible number of links that could have been placed on this graph 
given the number of nodes. For eight nodes, the maximum possible number of links was 28. We actually have nine. Nine divided by 28 gives us gamma at 0.321. It is an aggregate accessibility index. And in a metropolitan area where the Pittsburgh Pirates play baseball, 0.321 looks like a pretty good average. But in fact, compared to Houston or Boston or a lot of these other places, it's a fairly low number. Okay, that's what we got. 1987. By 1987, uh, we have added something. Uh, particularly, we've added a new link, Pennsylvania 28, from Harbor to West Catania, out here. That's the link that got added. By adding that link, we established a new node at Westford Catanning. Remember, a terminus is a node. So we have one new node, one new link. I didn't give you the whole matrix over here. I just gave you the degrees of the nodes, and then the total number of links and the total number of nodes. And we calculate uh, gamma down here, and it has dropped to 0.278. Dropped because we established a poorly articulated new node out here in the rural urban fringe. And we didn't do anything to connect any of the high accessibility nodes that are in closer to the center. That brought gamma down. 1999, the, the year you are working on. By this time, uh, we have added Pennsylvania 60 from the airport to here, and I agonized over what to call this one. North Beaver describes its location because it's in northern Beaver County. Sometimes they call it the Beaver Valley Interchange, and it is physically in the municipality of New Beaver. So you can take your pick of those, but I called it North Beaver. So this is the new link that we established, and we also established the Parkway North and this non-nodal intersection here, which on our uh, C1 matrix, gives us a link, a direct connectivity link, connecting downtown to Cranberry. So what has changed since 1987 is that Robinson is connected to a new node here. Downtown is better connected to Cranberry. We have intensified the connections of two of our established nodes um, and created one new node. And that actually brings gamma back up a little bit to 0.289, a little bounce there. 2009. Um, yeah. We, by this one, <laughs> you like this one? Yeah. Oh, there it is. Okay. What is that? Monfayette. Monfayette. Yes, that is Monfayette. Uh, the Monfayette Expressway, and I decided to call this node South Mon. I had to call it a node because we have an intersection here. Uh, this is, well, dubious. <laughs> it's not really a terminus because it's not completed and it's heading in, not out. So, uh, so anyway, what we've established here is um, the Monfayette Expressway, Pennsylvania 43, uh, the South Mon Node, um, and we've managed to knock gamma down to 0.255. So there we are. This is the full 
uh, matrix for 2009, and I decided to put in in red, just a little refresher, the information for 1980 so that you could just see node by node how the whole thing has changed from 1980 to 2009 um, uh, in terms of uh, degrees of the nodes. And we have had some improvements in accessibility in particular nodes. And the big winner here has been Cranberry. It moves up uh, two notches. Nobody else moves <coughs> more than one. But also, we have established one, two, three poorly articulated nodes in the rural urban trend. And that's what's dragging gamma down to 0.255. So that's, um, uh, that's the comparison. I thought uh, maybe you'd be interested in another comparison at this point. I'm going back to 1999 uh, on my map, but I just wanted to show how the employment density map stacks up with the, um, the transportation nodes. And uh, they match up in some places and not in others. Downtown matches up, Robinson matches up, Cranberry Marshall matches up. I know Cranberry is actually in Butler County, and so I didn't show its employment. Um, but Marshall Township does show up, and those two kind of form a, a contiguous area. So we have some places where the, the key points in our transportation network match up with uh, our employment pattern, but we have other places where they don't. Oakland Shady Side, O'Hara, Ross and McCandless Townships and all of this stuff in the South Hills, we have mismatches. So um, is the polycentric city being served by its multimodal transportation network? Somewhat, in some, in some cases, uh, uh, not so much. Um, and um, there are a number of things that could be brought into that. But, uh, but we don't have a perfect match between those two. Um, maybe we don't even have a very good match between those two. Okay, but we have plans. <coughs> plans to remedy the situation, and these all fall under the general heading of the Mon Fayette Expressway. I am fascinated by the number of different links of different types, serving different types of areas that are all referred to under the banner of the Mon Fayette Expressway. Um, uh, some of them are uh, in Fayette or very close to the Mon. Uh, but, uh, but for political log-rolling purposes, that has become uh, a good banner uh, to attempt to get funding. And uh, so you will recognize that some of these have been built and are already in service, and some of them have not. I'd like to kind of put each of these different links <coughs> in two broad categories. You may have noticed I do that. No matter how complicated the situation is, Let's take two broad categories and shoehorn everything in one together. Uh, but I do that. But anyway, um, let's put these in the categories of intensifiers or dissipators. Because what we have learned from that little time sequence was that a new link either intensifies the access of an already important place, such as the CBD or Robinson or Monroeville, or a new link extends out into the rural urban fringe and creates a new node someplace in the semi-boondocks. And in the first case, gamma goes up 
And in the second case, gamma goes down. And so when you look at these various components, when you break Mon Fayette Expressway down into components, some of them are intensifiers that are going to push gamma up, and some of them are dissipators that are going to push gamma down. Okay. The catches, the ones that are being built right now or have been built, are the dissipators. That's why gamma has gone down to 0.255. The ones that we don't know how they're going to be funded and when they're going to be built, those are the intensifiers. So we kind of have a de facto trend towards uh, dissipation in spite of the fact that the master plan maybe is actually uh, in uh, the opposite direction. Okay. Well, and, and, and you may argue effectively that is based on some painfully simple methodology. Um, just think about all of the real, all of the reality that I have just totally simplified away by starting out with nodes and links and, and, and a binary graph. And, and that's true. Um, so let's look at a couple of alternatives here. How can we take this type of network analysis and make it more complicated? Well, the first thing we could do is make it into a valued graph. That is, we could assign weights of various kinds to links and nodes. Links, we could actually care how long they are in terms of miles, or we could factor in travel time or something like that. We could measure them in terms of capacity. We could actually uh, build those into our equations and start to have that influence the accessibility of the nodes they, um, uh, they serve. And we could assign values as any transportation planning uh, modeling program does. We could assign uh, values to the nodes themselves. How much, how much congestion does a node create? What are the turn possibilities uh, of a node? All of those things get built in uh, to GIS models and TransCAD models and all, all of that stuff. That would make a much more complicated analysis, but a much more realistic analysis and that it would uh, bring in a lot of those details. A second thing that we could do is incorporate indirect connectivity. Did you notice I left that out? Well, you can really get to Robinson from Monroeville. You just have to pass through another node on the way. Uh, the easy way to do that is matrix multiplication. Take the C1 matrix, and multiply it by itself. And you can put this on any kind of spreadsheet. You can do that instantaneously. Multiply C1 times C1. Tell it where to put the results. And what you have is C2, a matrix that shows you all of the two link paths in the system. They just pop right up. And if you multiply C2 times C1, you get C3, all of the three link paths in the system. So that, that's the easy one to do in an operational sense. Um, it is not the most informative because what you're doing is producing a lot of redundant paths. They're not all new paths that pop up. Many of them are redundant of uh, previous paths. And, and so that one uh, is easy, uh, but not as useful. The third thing you can do is get into this kind of stuff. This kind of stuff spatial interaction modeling, where you actually 
take characteristics of neighborhoods and assign each neighborhood to a node. And so you create a profile of the neighborhoods that are served by a particular node. Economic status, demographic status, social status, whatever. You can get the data, you can plug it in and assign it to that node, and then you can use one of these dandy little uh, polynomial formulas and calculate and estimate the interaction that's going to occur between any given pair of nodes, and you can rebuild a matrix that has all of these interactions aggregated together. It's terribly complicated and terribly elaborate and terribly interesting um, uh, uh, way of doing things, and there are several ways of doing it, gravity models, potential models, retail models, just depending on how you want to adjust the calculus um, uh, in here. That can be done. Okay. But I didn't do it today. Uh, and I don't want to talk about it anymore today. Uh, because, because we'd be here far beyond today. Uh, what I want to talk about, though, is didn't we learn something from the simple model? As painfully simple as it was, as much as we kind of obliterated reality and just put it down to some red dots and some green links, still, Something useful came out of that. We saw how gamma is going down. That's a problem. That is an aggregate accessibility problem for the Pittsburgh network. And it's a real problem. We saw how Cranberry ascended. Well, intuitively, that fit right in. Uh, we knew that Cranberry is burgeoning in terms of land use. We saw how uh, the addition of links um, really coincides with that. So even starting with the very simplest form of models, we learn something useful uh, about our, uh, our transportation network. Okay. What we want to do is build on that, or what I would like to do is build on that. I'm kind of an incrementalist, you know. Start with the simple thing, see what you learn from that, and then try and figure out what you can do next uh, to add on to it. What are we going to have to do to take our simple model and incrementally make it a little bit more complicated, work in some more uh, realism uh, to solve particular problems? Well, we're going to have to look at the details of uh, particular places. This is the Harbor Township interchange um, from, from Google and, and uh, from a map I put together. And um, it was just a red dot on the map. Well, it's not just a red dot on the map. It is, it is a labyrinth of on-ramps, off-ramps, Freeport Road, Pennsylvania 28, the Turnpike, a big bridge over the Allegheny River. It's all of that stuff. And so we have to learn how to look at these things empirically. Um, and uh, not just so we can try to create an encyclopedia of every detail of every interchange, but so we can figure out some conventions for generalization. So if we want to generalize to this level, how do we do that? And if we want to generalize somewhat less, how do we do that so that our study can be consistent with one somebody did for St. Louis or, or for Boston or, or some other place? Empirical uh, work needs to be done uh, in that area uh, to help us figure out good ways to use some of the tools that are available. Okay. Final thought. 
quantitative models of transportation systems are not going to be the definitive word in transportation policy decisions. These guys aren't going to, you know, <laughs> go through a potential model and say, oh, this is what we should do. They're going to be listening to constituencies, they're going to be listening to pressure groups, they're going to be uh, attuned to their core values, which you might call ideology if you wanted to be a little more uh, pejorative about it. They have their ways, and they may be influenced to some degree uh, by quantitative geography, but it's not going to be uh, the uh, major factor. And because it's not the major factor in the real world decisions, that means that scholarship, if it wants to be relevant, is going to have to use some other uh, methods too. And there are things, humanistic approaches, structuralist approaches, behavioralist approaches, how do politicians think, what, what makes them do what they do. All of these are legitimate scholarly approaches along with uh, the quantitative model. Um, uh, my theme today, the thing I, I kind of wanted uh, to get across, um, is that there is room for a lot of different ways to study the relationship between transportation uh, and urban structure. Um, and I think uh, the various approaches um, that we apply are going to be more fruitful if we kind of uh, uh, work together and are uh, cognizant of each other rather than we try and set it up as a paradigm uh, where one method of research is appropriate and another is not. Um, okay, thank you very much. Thanks, Don, and open it up now for questions. Hi. Um, I was wondering, uh, just a couple def definition matters. Uh, okay. What do you mean by articulated node and another one for the way you look at uh, constraints? Is do you, oh, you okay. could you put any um, any weight on topography, to topographic challenges? Yeah, and I threw the like word that. articulation around a lot, didn't I? Hope that didn't hit anyone with your word. Um, I use that kind of as a generic term because I'm generalizing so much. I'm taking an interchange, a very complicated interchange, and making it a red dot. Okay, but there is a reality there of how you get from the westbound on this one to the southbound on that one. That's what I mean by articulation. And of course, some of it is just a nice loop ramp. Some you have to go off onto another road and sit at a stoplight and make a right-hand turn. And you know, so when I'm saying it's well articulated or it's poorly articulated, how easy is it to get from length to length? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Hi, thanks. Um, I guess in the health and social sciences, we're increasingly being tasked with um, accounting for social interactions, social networks, and cohesion mm -hmm. in our models. And um, I'm just wondering how well you think that these type of quantitative geographic models correlate with population level interactions and whether there's any examples of kind of qualitative um, um, complementary research, because, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the quantitative geography. I just, yeah. I'm wondering how, you know, how well it... Um, work together. Well, 
I, I think the most obvious touchstone there is when you get into some of those spatial interaction models. Because there, at least, you're starting to work in socioeconomic data as a variable. Now, one of the really hard things to do is figure out, you're creating some kind of mathematical formula that's going to tell you how many trips to expect between Monroeville and the Central Business District. And so you take these data for all of the census block groups around Monroeville, and these data for all the census block groups for, uh, around the Central Business District, and some of those statistics have a fairly conspicuous objective link with travel behavior, like the number of employees, but other things don't, like, like race and ethnicity, like religion, like age profile of the population. And so what people do in those cases very often is create something called a dummy variable, where they just kind of make up a number. We, you know, this is a this is a nominal variable. We don't know what its impact is on transportation, so let's just assign it a number and put that in our equation so we can get an answer. You know, and maybe your intuition is just right, and, and, and maybe it's it's just wrong. Um, but uh, but people do those kinds of things, and it's okay as long as both the author and the reader know what a dummy variable means. A dummy variable is an educated guess, um, and that equation is no longer a rigorous mathematical formulation. It is now just a tool that's being used for a more humanistic approach. So, so there, is, there, there is that kind of overlap between the two methodologies, and, and I think it's appropriate that, that there is, as, as long as you take the the appropriate frame so. um, You said that the 0.321 the was a low gamma yeah. relative to other. What is What would be a considered a good, like robust oh, size gamma? And yeah. what, where, what are some of the places in the country that have like, very high values and have good connectivity? Mm -hmm. um, hmm. I don't think, I don't think a 0.5 would be um, question for, can you picture the highway map of Columbus, Ohio, where you can drive around and around the city and the radials go out in all directions? Yeah. I don't think a point five would be, that might be too long. I haven't calculated a lot of these cameras from one of other uh, cities, but, uh, but think about, as you're looking at the map, think about the number of circuits you can make, where you start out and end up the same place and you never travel the same length twice. There are not very many circuits in the Pittsburgh Transportation Network. Whereas, if you start out in downtown Columbus, you can drive out to the suburbs and around and back, and out and around and back in, in numerous different ways. So I think, you know, somewhere in kind of gamma falls between zero and, and one. And somewhere in the middle there, um, it's not too much to expect given kind of the amount of effort and money that has been invested in it. And also a high gamma doesn't necessarily 
a positive, it's not always a positive thing. Is that a correct assumption to make? Well, now, you know, what good is gamma? It is, it is just a relative index. Yeah. You know, we've got a gamma of 0.321. Columbus has a gamma of, I don't know, but let's say 0.5. They have more circuitry in their network than, than we do. They have more options how to get from here to there than we do. That doesn't mean they use them well, you know, and that doesn't mean we use them poorly. So, you know, you can, you can put too much stake in this number pretty easily. But it's not a worthless number either. Higher gamma, all other things considered equal, is a good thing. All other things never are equal. Thank you. Yeah. Donna, before you went to the interaction models, you said you, the simple model would give you, say, the two moves from Monroeville to Robinson, but you forgot some important factor, two tunnels. Because <laughs> well, it doesn't say anything about time and congestion. Well, that's my valued graph. You so, build that in as a link characteristic. Because yeah. I was going to add, with, with yeah. Ben's question is, if you look at age of city and development over highway peer building periods versus older cities where roads were retrofitted in them, would that affect which ones were possibly you'd expect higher gammas off of that? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. An example of, of what happens that might might feed into this is we're dealing with um, we're dealing at my agency with uh, with with a pretty specific example of this. At the uh, we run a, a we've run for a long time a fan pool program mm -hmm. as a demonstration project for 20 years. And at say we, we were at we were asked recently by Westinghouse to look at their situation. They've recently moved from where they've been in Monroeville for forever to Cranberry. Mm -hmm. And to help with the transition, they provided their employees with bus passes for one year. And the bus passes have run out, and the the management at Westinghouse came to us and is wondering how come their employees are complaining that their bus passes have expired and they still can't get to work now. They, the management honestly expected all of their employees to uproot and move to Cranberry to be closer to their new, new work location. And, I mean, they're asking us to solve the problem with, with <coughs> and other solutions. <laughs> and there is like a disconnect about what about what they expected. Well, I digress, but that reminds me of um, some of my studies of Eastern Europe, where you know they had the planned metropolis, and they created all of these neighborhood units. And a neighborhood unit was supposed to have a factory, a housing complex, schools, and the people were supposed to live in the housing complexes, work in the factories, and go to those schools. And of course, nobody did that. In Moscow or Kiev or any of those cities, they lived in this housing complex because they were close to their cousin, and they worked in this factory across town because they liked the job over there, and they sent their kids to this other school because that's where they fit in socially, and so they were, uh, they were always grossly underestimating the amount of transportation capacity that they needed. So it's interesting that Westinghouse and they stole it. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between the the beltway 
from from a driving perspective and then the beltway from a rail or public transit perspective. So for example, if you take like a Washington DC yeah. and its relationship to its beltway and then also its transit nodes from a public transportation situation. Okay. Uh, are you concerned about the intermodalism? The intermodalism yeah. and then if you have these areas where jobs are densely located. Yeah. What is the ability for people using public transportation to access yeah. that particular location and how does that speak to the productivity and, and the relative health of a, of a city <coughs> in relationship to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a certain degree of intermodalism in Pittsburgh. We have the parking rights. And, and my understanding is uh, that those lots tend to fill. I, I come in Route 22, and I go by that one that's out there in, in Plumborough, and um, by 7.30 every morning, the last bus is left, and the lot is full, you know. So intermodalism definitely appeals. They drive in to Plumborough from wherever, maybe from where I live, and they park there, and then they take the bus in uh, into the city, and I don't think it's a fast trip. You know, you got to drive in, you got to wait for the bus, which is fairly reliable because it's a dedicated bus, and then you got to get through the same traffic everybody else does to get into the city, and still that's attractive to people. So I think it's I think it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a long um, uh, <coughs> commute, but uh, and and I know I know the people at Port Authority are, are well. Right now, they're they're so much on the defensive because they're you know, just trying to keep some fraction of their budget intact so they continue operations. But uh, but when you when you talk to them, um, they they have dreams also and the, uh, things about transit centers, um, key articulation points uh, where they could enhance the development of intermodalism um, and. Uh, and dovetail the two systems. Pardon me? That route from Plum is probably being cut. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're cutting like lots of barren routes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, should we boo and hiss? <laughs> um, or should we applaud them for recognizing that public transit within the, within the budget constraint Public transit is the most effective in high-density development. You know, that's kind of... I mean, for the last 20 years, they've been trying to sort of lure America to public transit by putting uneconomical routes into the suburbs and saying, see how much you like this? And enticing the suburban voting population to being in favor of subsidies and and I don't know if that's working. So the fallback position is put transit where you have high density and are going to have high usage rates. It's going to have to be subsidized in either case. But the one is going to, you know, in a formulaic sense, look much more uh, efficient. So, yeah. Yes, sir. No, yeah. say, how does that jive 
given the topography and the population breakdown of Pittsburgh, then how would you see that jiving with the fact that you only have a couple of very dense areas in the city, like you know, some small parts of the city center yeah. that are dense and can be served, but many of the people who are working in the central business district yeah. and working in these centers are from far from, you know, from Chris, have you, you done a population density map by census track? By block, you want to say By block, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean that that would be that would be the the simple model to start out with. The population density map by census block, and then to refine it, you would say, oh well, what is the profile of a public transit user? We know by age and occupation and a number of other characteristics. So then you map that specific population, not just total number of people, and you say, here are the areas we should attempt to serve, and beyond that, we triage because the Commonwealth is not willing to spend that much money to subsidize transit where it isn't efficient. So that's how it would work. Jim. Um, so many questions, and I'm going to be buying you lunch a lot this semester. Okay. Um, <laughs> Just looking at one particular thing, one of the you know, you're focusing on the uh, assumption that that the easiest way to get in your car and get from point A to point B is the most desirable. Kinda. Is that am I totally off base or? Uh, I, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. I get my car to the morning. I want it to be. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay, yes. but I'm, I'm looking at these because one of the things that us, uh, us uh, touchy-feely planner architect types uh, like is we want to get people out of their cars, and I'm looking at multimodal, even beyond the public transit, looking at we're trying to get people to walk, we're trying to be, you know, create walkable mm -hmm. communities, mm -hmm. we've got all these algorithms with walk score and everything else yeah. like that, we've got biking things, and the, all the, the the numbers change when you start putting in time and effort factors and where are you really trying to go and are we looking at trying to force a paradigm shift in land use you know it, it kind mm -hmm. of messes up all those equations yeah. I would think well, um, and can we well, accommodate for, for different modes of transportation that are non-vehicular um I think you probably know the answer more about the answer to your question to that particular question than I do, but I'll, I'll tell you what I see. Okay. Um, I see a lot of effective planning at the micro level. You know, because we we have places like Mount Lebanon, which are very pedestrian mm -hmm. friendly, and you know, I was in Mount Lebanon on Tuesday. Uh, and I was in Monroeville yesterday morning. And two suburbs. Night and day. Both, yeah, night and day. Just entirely different landscapes. I mean, one's, you know, one's Saturn and one's Venus. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but at, at, the, at the micro level, there, there seems to be quite a bit of effective planning. I want to kind of examine the macro level and say, at least, let's see if we can develop an effective model, a, a, a useful model of what's going on at, 
at the macro level. I think right now we're kind of winging it. We're kind of saying, well, if we just keep uh, redesigning our curb cuts so we have traffic calming on Beverly Road, that, that the macro will take care of itself. I don't think it's taking care of itself. Um, and uh, so uh, we need to work on this thing. What kind of model, how can we study a polycentric city? How can we come up with some concepts that are going to tell us what, what it's really doing at that macro level? So that, that's, that's a part of it that I'm most interested in. Yeah, one other thing um, I'm going to to curse you, Donald Joe Walter, because now for the first time since I had all this matrix algebra <laughs> model and stuff with John Nyston in grad school, I finally now understand why I was supposed to pay attention. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy in my touchy-feely world. Well, yeah, yeah. well, I'd just like to reiterate, I don't think the touchy-feely world in this world should... The thing about the matrixes and the grass and that sort of thing, they can be very definitive within a narrowly focused field of view. Well, if they can really nail down an anchor for an intellectual idea, that can be extremely valuable to touchy-feely people. Yeah, we know this, we can start here. Uh, so see clearly what you can see clearly and, and yeah. then do what you have to do with the rest of it. That's why Lisa and I have been passing notes back and forth to each other. The other thing you've given us today, Don, is a great takeaway to, to show to people, you see, the axiom is true, you can't get here from there. Um, which, you know, is the basis for any Pittsburgh directions. Um, one, of the, one of the things that isn't reflected in this model, but seems to be very important um, as, as a planning implication of the different gravities of the different timings behind all of the things that appear in the maps and in the calculations in terms of the the amount of time it takes to, to plan, say, the Monfayette Expressway and, yeah. and to put it in by the time that it is conducted in the underlying uh, population densities and development plans have, have completely shifted um, in opposition to those plans, not necessarily in favor of them. Mm -hmm. So these are these are big problems to overcome in these types of models. No? Well, and... and what you're wandering into, and I hope you have your your line disarmament apparatus firmly in place, is um, cause and effect between transportation and land use. And time factor gets to be crucial and um, extremely difficult mm -hmm. to analyze. Right. Yeah, because that Don gets down to the planners on the you know at the boot level on the street with some of these, for instance, related to your to your van point because Westinghouse has to provide parking and that becomes this huge cost. So when the plum lot goes, uh, and those folks are not taking the bus and parking, which is already expensive and limited in downtown, soars until companies decide they're just out of here because it's just beyond them. And Brian Perry's here; he's working in Oakland. Uh, the university has made it its long time now policy is to get people out of their cars by uh, giving them their, their staff or the students pay a fee or faculty card is your uh, basically your Port Authority bus pass mm -hmm. with the idea is that they didn't want to build more parking lots mm -hmm. um, and Oakland has to you know within this zone of constricted 
uh, public transit and the people in Plum who were taking the bus in through the port, you know, in through the uh, busway and then on in, if that becomes a parking issue, it's a huge land use issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, there's enough parking as is, but the idea of more parking becomes really problematic for the, the Oakland neighborhood plan as well. In 1994, the Association of American Geographers meeting was in Atlanta, Georgia, <coughs> and we were in the Marriott Hotel. My room was, I don't know, way up there someplace. On the south side, so I could actually look out my window, and at night I could see the airplanes coming in Hartsfield every 90 seconds. That quadrant, okay, so the Marriott is just about in the middle of the CBD, and I'm looking out at the southeastern quadrant. And about 75% of the land use in that quadrant of the CBD is parking. <laughs> Street level parking, at least a half a dozen multi-story garages. That is the parking sector. They basically carved out a quarter of the central business district to park the cars. <laughs> and given the latest growth rate in the last, you know, what, 16 years or 18 years, yeah. 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 Um, what's that? Yeah, yeah. yeah what you know, that, that space becomes, you know, the value of that space is a lot higher than parking cars. Yeah. Yes, uh, one thing that would have uh, added a node or linked to downtown would have been if you had connected Shaler with downtown, which you didn't, probably because there's no great separated highway connecting the two. Route 28 is there, but it has traffic signals right yeah. now. Now, yeah. that is going to change with right. the project. So, would that change, would that create a link in your own oh, yes. ideology? Yeah, it would. would. Even though it's not an well, interstate. Well, I'll have to see what it looks like. <laughs> I have talked to Pandora officials, and they have said, this is going to be a fully controlled access highway. And years later, you know, I'm driving on Route 22, and I'm stopping here, and I'm stopping there, and here's someone cutting across because there's yeah. no traffic signal on some of those. You know, and, and it isn't what it was purported to be. So, um, so what I, I, I think the design plan is, yes, even though it's not an interstate highway, as that. That's right. It doesn't okay. have to be an interstate highway. And some, some of these are not. Turnpike, and you know, some of these upgraded Route 28 to Catania. It's true. It's a very nice road. Um, I, I do have another comment, and. Uh, if, you consider travel time, not just that there's a link, but that what is the travel time? Yeah. Because even if there's not a link, it still may be a relatively short travel time from A to B. And by using travel time, also you would not have concluded that light rail would be a better choice to our airport because by travel time, the busway is, would be a much faster option than a light rail. Unless they end the busway at the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Because buses go faster than trains? Of course. Yes. Pardon? Because buses go faster than trains? It would, then, it would be faster than that particular train. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess it depends on, right. you know, how many stops the train and or bus. Uh, uh, right. Thanks. It does, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just kind of echoing what's already I'm uh, thinking about is your reliance or your focus solely on whether it access highways. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes, if I'm going from downtown to the east, like after 3 or mm -hmm. 2.30 in the afternoon, yeah. I'm not going to take the enter the, the access right. highway because I would get there faster on the second half yeah. of the Allies. Yeah. People, people in, in this region, like, 
uh, travel on little like something run roads, like up little ravines sure. and like. Uh, oh, people are very resourceful. Yeah. So I, I just don't know what, what, what's your value in just looking at system. Well, what you're, what you're touching on, what you're touching on, is some of the problems you get into when you decide to do a value graph. Okay, so I'm realistic to say it's either a link or it's not a link. Links have values. They have, let's, let's assign values. What is the travel time for particular? Depends on where you're going. You know, as somebody said at 2 a.m., any place in Pittsburgh is 20 minutes away. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's wonderful catching those 5.30 a.m. flights at Pittsburgh Airport, Indiana, Pennsylvania. You know, um, you have an afternoon flight, you might as well leave at the same time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, so it's, you know, putting values on those links is, is tricky business. Um, and, uh, and not my little thing about the, uh, that I showed the harbor interchange. Okay, how do you take this very complicated real world place and make that into an abstraction. Because even the complicated models, even the potential models and the gravity models and the entropy models and all of those, even those rely on simplifying assumptions. So you have to have a system for taking the complexity of the real world and making assumptions to get the degree of generalization that you want. One more question, Yeah, mixing it up with the political. Well, my second part of my first question was, you know, I, I kind of mixed them up, but what it was, how do you, how can you quantify maybe the effort involved in creating a link because of the topography mm. or the cost of you know, <laughs> legacy infrastructure, removing it? And, you know, the Montfayette is a good example of that because yeah. you have to take out all, a lot of old mills and, and um, what neighborhoods that are one-tenth vacant, but at the same time, you either build a retaining wall, a bridge, or a tunnel, or all three, mm -hmm. when, you, when you do anything in transportation infrastructure. And uh, in terms of, you know, comparing us to Houston or Atlanta, it's not the real world, you know, compared to the topography here. So how can you factor that in to find the right, uh, the modes that are most efficient given the resources at hand and the topography and things like that. So we could say to a politician, look, you, you, you love, we'd love to have your six-lane highways go everywhere and get our uh, um, gamma up to 0.6, but mm -hmm. you know, that's not going to work. Yeah. Then this is what will, might be an alternative mm -hmm. calculation of yeah. what we got here. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you, and you're raising one of those humanistic questions, it goes back to the freeway revolt of the 1970s when people said, we don't care what gamut is, we don't want another freeway, you know, cutting through the fabric of our cities, and that's very legitimate, that's right. The pity is, when we build the freeway, and it makes gamut worse instead of better. Let's <laughs> 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 eliminate that. <laughs> Don, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming.